I think, you know, if you just need a little bit of encouragement at any time in your life, a little bit of encouragement goes such a long way. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Sometimes, being a studio founder means doing the work no one else wants to do. From cleaning toilets to finding the work that keeps the studio lights on. While it's been some time since Cartoon Saloon co-founder Nora Toomey has had to clean a toilet, she's not below doing what needs to be done in order to stay creative and independent. We had the opportunity to speak with Nora about her early love for drawing and animation, the ups and downs of running a studio, how she stays creative, as well as her latest feature film, My Father's Dragon, a beautiful adaptation of Ruth Stiles Gannett's award-winning children's book. Here's our conversation with Nora Toomey. What was it like growing up in Cork? Um, what was it like growing up in Cork? Cork is a lovely part of Ireland. Um, West Cork is very picturesque and scenic. Um, Middleton, where I'm from, there's a distillery there. Um, uh, which is lovely as <laughs> you can get whiskey, uh, which wasn't great for growing up, I guess. Um, but yeah, it was, it's, it's a, it's a lovely town. Um, big main street, Cork City is lovely. Uh, I grew up kind of in the seventies and eighties. I was a bit, um, um, I, I'm not sure how to describe myself because I was always very artsy or into drawing, but there wasn't really a way forward for that in the 80s in Ireland. And anybody who loved you and wanted to look after you was kind of telling you, mm, maybe get yourself a good secretarial course or, you know, try accounting or do something, you know, but, but like forget about art basically. It'll be nice for your Sundays if you have some time off, but don't try and make a career out of it. So I fell down completely. And when I, by the time I was 15, my dad had died when I was 14. By the time I was 15, I've, I just fell completely out of education, couldn't find my way back in. I had a kind of a selective mutism thing where I, I really couldn't even describe what was going on for me. And I felt uh, so. Yeah, it was it was a tough, tough time, I have to say. But by the time I got to about 15, uh, but my mum was really understanding. She um, let me work on the farm for a while, which for me was re-energizing. Um, and I love nature and I love that whole I lo- just loved it. Then I got a job making reproduction antique dolls, these <laughs> freaky looking porcelain things. But again, I love that because I got a paycheck at the end of the week that said, here's what you did and, and here's what it's worth, to, which to me was amazing. But then I wanted to earn some money because I did want to get back into education at some point. I wasn't sure how or where or when or anything like that. But I started working in a factory and um, I did that for, gosh, about three years, I guess. And it was literally doing 12 hour shifts, usually night shifts because they paid more for the for night shifts, watching a conveyor belt go by, go by with, you know, bits of vegetables. And my job was to pick out any black bits from the vegetables or anything that looked slightly gone off or anything like that. Um, sometimes there was field mice <laughs> on the conveyor belt. Um, but what was interesting about that, a, a, I got to earn money, which again, gave me a sense of worth or something weirdly. But uh, I also had to use my imagination to entertain myself. You weren't supposed to talk to other people when you were doing your job because you were you, know, you were to keep your eyes on the belt. You couldn't listen to music or anything like that because the machinery was so li- loud. You had to wear earplugs and then headphones over the earplugs. So I, I used to just entertain myself by making up stories all the time. Uh, I would just make beginnings, middles and ends all of the time. And uh, that's what I would do for those night shifts. And then I'd sleep during the day and I'd go back to work. Eventually, though, about 21, 22, 
I figured I'd earned up enough. And my sister helped me with a portfolio. She was big into art as well. And she helped me put together a portfolio with things like gesture drawings and, you know, observational studies and a bit of color work and that. And I got into uh, like a year long course in Cork in a place called uh, Kaloshta Stefan Nefa, um, which uh, it, I, I got to do a bit of ceramics, a bit of, you know, fabrics, you know, uh, fine art, painting, oil paint. I got to like, paint in oils and things like that. And so I, I did that for a year, figured out there was something called animation um, that you could do and again, get paid for. <laughs> so so I went on to um, uh, study in Dublin then. So I left Cork at that point. Wow, that's quite a trip to getting into animation. Was that ever another th- a thought in your mind that you could do that? Drawing was my passion. I loved animation in that uh, seeing the Disney films on TV was like a like a whole other world for me. My mother said when I was like a baby, when we had a small little TV in our kitchen, we never really placed a huge amount of importance on the screen. Um, we didn't get to go to the cinema or anything like that when I was when I was young. But she said that when I when like the TV was on, I would just like stare with like huge eyes and my mouth agape kind of. So, um, so I, I had a fascination for it, but especially animation because I didn't know how it was done. I had no idea how, you know, 12 uh, drawings per second became animation. Didn't know it was 12 drawings per second. I just knew it looked different and felt different. And I loved it when I, that year long course in Cork was quite informative for me because at the time, fine art in Ireland was a little bit more about finding an object, putting an object in a white room you know, writing an essay, putting that essay on the wall beside the object rather than actually just practical stuff. I just wanted to use my hands. And so that's how I got to animation. Um, other um, people on the course and some of the tutors were talking about how animation might be something that I'd be interested in. And indeed it was. Ballyfort, was it your first choice? Um, Ballyfermot? Yeah. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> because having, again, like having not done, you know, any kind of um, uh, academic qualifications, I was really lucky to have that portfolio that, that they helped me put together in Cork and with my sister's help and that. And so it was it was uh, not that I knew. I mean, again, it wasn't a massively informed decision. I didn't know that the college had been set up at a time when Don Bluth was looking to, you know, feed Bluth Studios in Dublin with um, trained animators and uh, trained cleanup artists. And so I, I didn't really know that I was landing in a really good situation. <laughs> Um, at a great course, you know, that had been uh, the, the course had been modeled on the Sheridan um, uh, model. And so it was an incredible course to get into because you really learned about all those fantastic things about squash and stretch and all of the principles of an, an animation arcs and everything. And Glenn Keane came to visit one time, uh, you know, our, our school and completely invigorated everybody uh, in the college. I got to do an internship in Disney when it was in Paris, when they were doing Tarzan. And again, Glenn Keane was there. So it was one hell of an education. Not just the course itself, but then the people, the other people on the course. So you had, you know, there were some mature students there. You had some people who were 17 there. You had me who was in my kind of early to mid 20s. And I met um, Tom Moore, Paul Young, Jeremy Purcell, Fabian Erlinghauser, loads of people, um, uh, Lorraine Lorden, lo- lots of people that I still work with today. I met uh, during that time in my life in Ballyfermot. That period of time seems like a very formative part of your career as an artist and as an individual. I mean, it kind of has shaped the last, you know, 10 years of your life. What was that like? 
Yeah, I guess I couldn't believe that everyone was taking drawing seriously. Like for because for me again, it was such a refreshing thing and such an empowering thing to think that okay, this thing that I like to do <laughs> with my hands, there's other people that like to do it too. And my gosh, when we start doing things together, because you know, again, part of that course was working together. You know, um, as part of a team, we were we were you know uh, we, we would team up for different parts of the, the the curriculum, and so it was really an incredible thing. Where does the idea come? Like, let's start a studio. Oh, Tom was from Kilkenny or had had grown up in Kilkenny. He was from North of Ireland, but he he, um, he grew up in Kilkenny. And he had been part of an organization called Young Irish Filmmakers who were based in an old orphanage in Kilkenny. They'd been set up in the 90s, I think, by a guy called Mike Kelly and a whole board of really fantastic people. And they were primarily kind of a live action setup. So they would, uh, it was a, like a, a non-profit organization. They would, uh, they had equipment like you know, lights and cameras. <laughs> they would give them to the young people uh, that that became members of Young Irish Filmmakers and they said, okay, here's how you grew up. Here's the things that we can teach you. Here's an expensive piece of equipment and I'm trusting you to, you know, to use it properly. Don't break it. Don't, yeah, don't break, but they were incredibly trusting. And the people that passed through there and I've met many, many of them uh, over the years had a confidence um, about their own abilities. Like, of course I can, you know, I'm worthy of this piece of equipment. And of course I've got a voice and I've got something to say. And of course I can, I can make something that other people might want to see or hear too. And so that that was really really special it really made me think you know now i i, I think you know if, if you just need a little bit of encouragement at any time in your life a little bit of encouragement goes such a long way and then that sparks you know it, it encourages other people and so tom was like this flame that we all kind of gravitated around because he he and aiden hart who's another guy who grew up in in Gilkenny, extremely talented uh, sculptor and artist they had the idea to uh, make a story uh, about the Book of Kells or something about the creation of Book of Kells. And uh, not only that, but they were going to make up part of it. Right? It was going to be imaginative. It was going to have, you know, like magical elements. And, you know, it's going to be this blend of historical and kind of fantastical story. And so we all started literally just drawing. I, I Tom and Lisa Lottie's partner uh, lived across the road from me with their young uh, child, uh, Ben. And so we just, we'd, we'd just all draw. And, and again, it was just that really naive, wonderful, innocent kind of love of just drawing together in collaboration and talking about how the story could um, evolve and all of that. And so that was kind of the start of the whole idea of and now Tom and Paul had started to work um, kind of semi professionally <laughs> together as well at the same time. So they had started doing things for like, you know, CD-ROMs. The company was incorporated around that time as well. I got a job in Brown Bag Films, um, uh, which is uh, Nine Story. They, they merged with Nine Story in the last uh, in the last oh, five or ten years. I got a job there after I left college because I finished a year earlier than Tom and Paul. And so when they were ready to finish, I came down to Kilkenny and that was the kind of the start of the company that was about... 12 of us, 12 apostles, I think. <laughs> um, and yeah, so we, we all, we, we went down to that one room in that old orphanage where we had like one computer, stacks of paper. We had like bought, um, some, uh, animation desks off of, you know, some companies that had gone into receivership. And, uh, that was the, the start of it. I can only imagine it must have been kind of scary as someone that's worked so hard her entire life. All of a sudden you're in this endeavor where, it's probably not paying much, if anything. Yeah. 
Yeah, we yeah we we made our own sandwiches for lunch for sure, and I was really you know bored of them. <laughs> I don't think I can eat another cheese salad sandwich. But I had nothing to lose, though. I think having done what I did at fifteen, I really felt like anything was progress for me, you know. And I so I I didn't really feel like oh this better go well or else I'm going to have to you know go and get a job in a big company or something like that. I just I I felt like I'd got my hands on a thread of gold and I wasn't going to let go, you know, uh, for anything. And so like the first years in the company were really difficult. Yes, I took like a big, like a big dip in, in pay to, to come down to Kilkenny. And, you know, we were cold, <laughs> literally, we were working with our coats on, but it felt really right. My um, husband worked on my first short film. We had the, the Irish Film Board in um, in Ireland or Screen Ireland, as it's known now, is an incredible organization that from a very early point said, hey, you know, do you guys want to make a short film? You know, here's how you can go and apply if you want to like see, you know, if, if, if you can uh, get a short film together or something like that. And so uh, that was one of the first things I did. We did some commercials. We tried to over the years, we tried to kind of compete with the whole commercial kind of, you know, scene, but do too well with that every now and again we'd get one and it was great we had like a flush of money for a couple of months and then we'd go dry again so we did whatever we could to keep the lights on but I guess for us um, the big picture was continuing to make that first little proof of concept teaser that we did for The Secret of Kells asking people to be involved and you know oftentimes people would just say yes Brendan Gleeson the fantastic actor for example agreed to just voice over our teaser that we did Keela an incredible Irish traditional band also lent their music to us you know so for me it was just a continuing education and like just ask somebody they might say no but they might say yes as well and so again like that that thread I just just hung on to it for dear life because it was a lot of hard work and a lot of times we'd climb over that orphanage wall at like 12 o'clock at night and uh, you know finish up working but it was incredibly invigorating and I always felt like I was learning so much yes I was making lots of mistakes yes I wasn't the best at putting budgets and schedules together yes you'd also have to clean the toilets as you were kind of and make sure we had like whatever instant coffee or whatever but um as we were animating but it was one hell of an education learning on the job oh yeah can't beat it can't beat it yeah was there ever a backup plan (laughs) no no there wasn't actually i knew that i could you know probably get a you know a job in a in a company if i wanted to i did feel though and i mean animation moves in in waves and cycles sometimes everybody wants you know a piece of what you're doing and other times you know you can't pay people to to put what you're doing up on the screen so it it does go in in cycles and it will again and i know that there's going to be times in my career if i'm lucky enough to continue on with it that there'll be dry periods again i'm pretty sure of that but i i think you can only give things your all the one thing i promised myself after leaving leaving that factory was that i wasn't going and like wish away time like go, oh it's six o'clock in the evening great I'm gonna I can leave now I that I, I wanted the opposite I wanted whatever I was doing that I to be something that I'd have to be dragged away from that I just couldn't wait to get back to it um and so that's the the bar that I, that's the only bar I set for myself it's not really about money or it's not about making a big flop or anything like that it's about it's about just loving what I'm doing and lo- loving the, the lessons that I'm learning as I do it You've done a lot of different things in animation and, you know, even clean the toilets, you know, you do what you have to do. Is there a part that you enjoy more than others? No. 
I mean, I can tell you, I don't like when somebody says to me, you know, how much, how long is it going to take for you to do that? And how much do you think it's going to cost? And how many people do you need on that team? I really like, literally, I think I have a block with all of that stuff. And no matter how many times I do it, I still can't figure it out. And I can't tell you accurately how much I can help somebody else do that, you know, in, in a way. But when it comes, yeah, it, it's a very difficult thing to do. And I think a lot of directors um, have problems with that. <laughs> In terms of enjoy, I do and I enjoy it all. I really do. I love when that first kind of, you know, flush of excitement when you realize, oh, my God, that could be a really great story or, oh, my God, look at that person. It'd be a great director or, you know, um, that kind of thing I, that that that's really exciting. But I do love when projects form, when they're they're in the, they're the writing part of the whole thing I really love. I love when it gets into animatic and you discover, oh, no, we have to go back into the writing part of things. I love when we get to, you know, um, work with actors and they bring so much in such a short space of time. They literally shove their hearts up, you know, uh, into into the, the, the sound of, uh, of everything. Um, I love when animators come on board. There's so many parts to it all. And each part requires full attention. And each part, you like as a director, you get energy from whoever it is that's joining the, the, the crew. So. You know, you, you do your rough animation, you've got clean animation that comes next and you get the energy off of those people who have a different way of looking at things than the, the rough animators. But there, it's, it all feels like one person is passing the pen on to, to the next, you know. For me, that's pure magic in that they all link in. Maybe somebody identifies, for example, with My Father's Dragon, somebody identifies with Boris in a particular way because he's an awkward kind of character who kind of apologizes for his existence. I've seen lots of people on our crew kind of identify with him in different ways and they all get energy from it and then they all give energy to him you know whether it's Gaten who, who voiced him or you know somebody who's actually just like who's who's coloring the the frames but they do it with such care because they know him you know then they bin him um that's a lovely feeling when you get like 300 people all kind of identifying with different parts of the story and then it gets put up on the screen I want to talk a little bit about your visual style because it's very unique and it's very particular to you and to Cartoon Saloon. But I was I was looking at your films and I stumbled on Backwards Boy. Oh. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, this is totally different than everything else. How did that come about? Oh my gosh, that was some learning curve actually. That was I, I think was it Tom? I God, it's gone back so I think Tom was the art director on that, or the character designer, and then Ross was the art director. Uh, Ross Stewart, who co-directed uh, Wolfwalkers and was the art director on The Secret of Kells. Big learning curve, <laughs> I have to say. With Backwards Boy, we tried photo montage with, um, with traditional animation. And it was an interesting one because tonally, that was an interesting film, I guess, in that it was like kind of like comedy. It's such a, a short film about a boy who's born with his head backwards. His dad kind of rejects him and his mom loves him and then he finds something that he's he's good at and his dad it kind of transpires or the way I looked at it certainly was that his dad really loved him but didn't want was afraid of loving him or something you know there was something there was something of of that to the to the the themes of the film and then he dies <laughs> and I remember wanting to do something with the ending of that which was a little less maybe hopeful than than it 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 turned out. I wanted it to be about the mother and father kind of thing in in a way, and it is. I mean, it it is in a way. We were it, for me. I remember thinking about okay, we can't be too grotesque with the characters because it's a short film. You have you know ten minutes. You in the first three minutes, you have to grab people. Uh, you have to have them you know connect with the idea that because you don't really have time for a beginning, middle, and end. You have to get people to connect with what you're doing. And I remember at times thinking, oh. 
I don't know if we know what we're doing here with the characters because they are a bit grotesque. And I, I, I don't want to push people away when we're really trying to make them feel for this character who's going to look really odd. So I, I remember just wrestling with all of those ideas while myself and Tom and Ross and our team, I remember Jeepers, I remember the software as well. God, it was a software called Animal, which, yeah, anyway, we, we were, we were struggling with it, uh, for sure. And it, yeah, it was an experiment. <laughs> there you go. Um, it was a big experiment. It, it just, it looked so different and tonally, like you mentioned, it's so unlike all of your other projects. So it kind of stuck yeah. out to me when I saw it. And, you know, it was interesting because I think if I, I haven't looked at it in years, but I'm sure if I did, Oh, gosh, I don't even know if we have it on any kind of like a higher resolution. I know it was a 35 millimeter film that we was delivered on. I don't know if it even stands up to like some of the technical things that we would have realized, like how how to use a, a texture to scan texture and how not to stretch it beyond its resolution. I bet you we have stretch textures in there and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know if I could even watch it now. But like you say, it's a learning experience, right? How did you come to My Father's Dragon? About uh, 10 years ago for me, it was about 2012 when I was contacted. So I had, at that point, I had co-directed with Tom on uh, The Secret of Kells. I had been head of story on Song of the Sea. I think we were still doing commercials and things like that. I, I had kind of shepherded um, I think, uh, uh, Puff and Rock, I think, which was a, a series that we did. Uh, I think that was in its early stages of development, and I was kind of helping that along. Also had two small kids at the time. I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old. This book had gotten to us through Julie Lynn, who's an amazing uh, producer from the US. She had just finished a film called Albert Nobbs in Dublin with Glenn Close, and it was part of the Dublin um, Film Festival at the time. And so myself and Paul Young, uh, my partner in Cartoon Saloon, we, I think, drove up or maybe got the train. Either way, I wasn't driving <laughs> because I read the book on the way up. So... Um, uh, and I just, there's a page in particular that I really loved where Elmer, who's the main character, his mom gets really angry with him because he gives a saucer of milk to a stray alley cat. And it's just one page and I just couldn't move beyond it um, for a while it, because it just, um, it really struck me that a, that a, a mom was getting so angry with a kid in a, in a, in a story, which is really scary. Like, you know, usually kids, you, you know, you can have anything happen. You can have parents die off screen or you can have, um, you know, you can have any kind of a thing happen, but you can have any kind of monster chase a child, but having a mom be angry, that's one of those faux pas or no, no, it's kind of thing that you have to handle really, really well. Ruth does Gannett handled it beautifully in a way that I'm, you know, parents reading that to children got layers of that story, you know, that, you know, why, why is a saucer of milk uh, an important, a big deal? Uh, parents got layers of that story and then children got other layers that parents couldn't even get. That look, when you look up into a parent's face and you know there's stuff going on for them, but you don't even have the language to ask them what that is. And you feel the fear, the lack of control, and you don't know how to uh, cope with that, how to process it, how to manage it when they're not being able to be real with you uh, in any kind of a way that makes sense. I had been that child that looked up into my my uh, parents' face and realized that I wasn't getting the whole truth, but not knowing how to even ask for the whole truth and not knowing certainly that I could take it. And then I have, you know, been a parent who at, at that point I had done that to, you know, to my, to my uh, young children. And I would go on to do it <laughs> for years and years. And I still do it, you know, that, that thing of trying to manage the people that you love, manage how they, you know, not wanting them to feel fear, you know, and, and sometimes maybe causing bigger fear by not being able to handle it that, that well. Also that, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, 
I really want to be compassionate with everyone in the film so that I make. And so therefore, I, I see it. I wanted it to be truthful, but loving in, in a handling of that kind of a, a story. And so I was off from that page. I was, I went up to the meeting and I started to nervously pitch myself to Julie Lynn. And about halfway through, she kind of stopped the whole meeting and she said, are you trying to pitch to me? Because it, like, you don't have to. And does that mean I can also stop pitching to you? And uh, so we were off, so to speak. Meg LaFauve, who's our incredible screenwriter, at that point had a writing partner, John Morgan, uh, who, and the two of them had been working already on kind of iterations, knowing that we were going to pull Elmer's um, emotional arc closer and the plot closer together so that it would make a really satisfying 90 minutes, a, a satisfying film. Um, and so by the time I met Julian, or, um, Megan and John, that was already the discussions were happening along those lines. I remember actually the first time I met them, I met Meg was just over a, a conference thing. It was before, you know, video calls and all of that. And I remember doing this big, long talk about, you know, how I saw Elmer and about halfway through realizing there was absolute silence on the line and then realizing it was because, the, the you know, the phone had dropped out probably, you know, uh, 10 minutes before or something like that. And I just continued on with this big, long as I'm doing now. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that that was the start of it. In the meantime, then I had uh, gone on to direct The Breadwinner because we took a slow route to development. John was, you know, had been diagnosed with cancer during that whole period and passed away. Um, and so Meg continued on the script, the screenplay alone from about 2017. And it was at, at that point, just before the screenplay that Netflix came on board, we actually had the privilege of pitching with John that magic pitch in, uh, uh, with Netflix where um, our executives at the time were really, really moved. And I just got to saw this, or see um, the, the magic that John and, and Meg um, brought to it. And so, yeah, that was the, that was how the film got into development. I can't help but think like you, you mentioned that you were stuck sort of on that page and I get emotional listening to you talk about, you know, kids and, and parents and that relationship. Do you think that had the film come to you or the project come to you at a different point in your life, you would have had that same connection to the material? Oh, definitely. It came at the right point and even the slow development, because in the meantime, I got cancer too, right? So during the breadwinner, I got cancer and I had to look down into my you know, little six-year-old's face as he said, your dad died of cancer. Are you going to die? You know, and me have to you know, kind of sidestep that, that, that question with, oh, you know, the doctors have these big syringes and they're full of like great medicine. And yeah, I'm going to lose my eyebrows and my hair, but you know, and I'll, I had, like, I had to have those conversations. And so I don't think I would have been able to make anything near as deep a film. Now, the, the layers are there in My Father's Dragon. If you look for them, you'll, uh, you'll find them. I always remember Brad Bird's, um, Iron Giant watching that as a student and you know I, I absolutely love that film so much and again it's a it's a film that's kind of inspired by the original book as opposed to like a straight adaptation I remember as a student you know thinking I know it all kind of thing and then watching the very end where you see all of the nuts and bolts kind of getting you know coming together and going, oh my god that's terrible that's you know they should have left it with the sacrifice because like you know I want to see that's the last thing I want to see of of the giant saying Superman you know kind of thing that that's where they should have ended it and I was like oh my god that's terrible and <laughs> then years later, coming back to it as a parent and just doing a silent prayer to Bradbird of thanks that that moment of hope is there because I would have destroyed my children if that hope wasn't there. And then as a parent and somebody, you know, who has, you know, nieces and in my life and that as well, that that moment is there because I grew into that moment. And I think that the more experiences you have, and I'm not saying you have to have kids or anything like that, you just have to live <laughs> And you have to, um, you have to have experiences that humble you and kick you in the butt and punch you in the stomach. Then you have something to say. 
One of the things I love about My Father's Dragon is that there's a lot of hope even in those really sad moments when they move to the city and there's all of this uncertainty about what's going to happen. There's still like this glimmer of of hope just baked into it. How difficult was it to sort of keep the balance of the positive and that hopeful feeling through those dark times? Yeah, well, there's always humor. There's always, always humor. I think that, you know, working on the breadwinner taught me that, you know, speaking with Afghan people who would just, you know, make jokes at the, at, you know, at, at what, what I would, you know, consider, oh my gosh, you're, you're, you know, joking about that. I think it keeps us sane, like always looking for something that, that will make us uh, smile, keeps us sane, not just with the writing. So we, like I said, worked, you know, Meg was terrific and our, our head of story, Giovanna Ferrari, who brought the, the story into the whole animatic phase and our editors, they were, they were all looking for ways. And ultimately, it's your gut that has to tell you when it's okay to smile and when it's not and that and when it's okay to laugh and when it's not and and how you, you know, work with. I think that that's a really instinctual thing. I don't think you can, it's not something that you can intellectualize, but it was interesting. I, I, what really made me feel it was going to be okay, hitting all those moments was working with the actors, right? So, um, Jacob Tremblay and Gaten Matarazzo in particular were able to reach depths of, and again, like from young actors, I just found it really amazing that they had such sophistication about them. They had such emotional intelligence that they were able to hit those moments and really reach for those really dramatic, snot crying kind of, you know, moments. But then at the same time, lighten it up, you know, as well. They were able to reach that in their own individual ways, watching them in the room together where Gaten would, for those big emotional scenes, he would go into a corner and literally turn his back on us while Jacob, who was younger, he was only 13, would just be playing around and, you know, singing. And, and then when, when Gaten would turn back around, there was such a wonderful atmosphere of trust in that room. You know, we'd uh, even, uh, you know, your sound engineer, your recordists have, are all part of that. They have to build this massive sense of trust in a space. It's a dark room, microphones, and you really have to just, there has to be such trust amongst everyone. They would just feed off each other's energy, you know, they would, and, and just, I, I felt like if I put my hand between the two microphones, I would get an electric shock. They were just, I knew at that point that the animators had what they needed. Rita Moreno as well, you know, like people that were able to just dial exactly right in terms of, you know, the, the amount of humor and the coldness and the warmth and all of this. Uh, Ian McShane as well, you know, Diane Weiss, you're, you're talking about like incredible actors, but they all are like they have like a childlike trust in the process and incredibly trusting. I remember early on in my career going, oh, my God, if I edit these performances wrong, I'm going to make good actors look like bad actors or, or sound like bad actors. So, again, like having to trust your entire team and your actors having to trust you in a way that you preserve the dignity of what they've done and that you preserve the humor of what they've done. And that, you know, everybody who's on your team also has to, to do that and, and bring so much to it. As a director of animation in particular, you always have to be really open to people plussing, you know, people making things better and people thinking about things that you hadn't thought about. So it's not really like my vision that I'm going to push through and everybody has to help me do that. Directing, for, especially for animation, I think all, all filmmaking and all directing, but especially for animation is about having your crew invest in what everybody's doing. Um, they're all bringing themselves to it. So you just guide them so that we're all running in the same direction. It kind of goes back to your early days where, you know, you were doing it for the love of doing it, right? You're, you're instilling that in your crew to get that project just perfect. 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, no, I, I really don't think anyway that anybody gets into filmmaking or animation or storytelling really because, oh, you know, <laughs> I want to be rich and famous or anything like that. You know, I, I think it's whether they're actors or animators or, um, you know, background painters, compositors, they're into that because at some point in their lives, that kind of creativity was able to express something for them that language couldn't or, you know, or normal stuff, you know, <laughs> couldn't, you know, there was something probably in a playground someplace that made them kind of really good at something, you know, kind of thing and made them want to express themselves through that, you know, which which they ended up, you know, the, the, the field that they ended up in. I think that's what binds us together. The fact that, you know, we're all coming out probably from different, you know, areas in our life. There is something that made us want to do this, you know, together. Um, and if you can tap into that as a director, that's where a piece of work can be really successful. Is it scary to know that you're kind of leading the charge and that you have to be there for everyone and you have to, the, the balance of being supportive, but also providing guidance? It can be scary. And especially with My Father's Dragon, which we made, you know, during the pandemic, you couldn't be there for everyone because we were all, you know, on the corners of our kitchen tables or uh, you know, we, we weren't physically in the same space. When you're physically in the same space, you have that going for you, honestly, you know, kind of thing, which means that it, it's a more, it's, it's really human. You can see when somebody's might have said, yes, I can finish that piece of animation by Friday, but you can see from like the, their posture, the, how much tension they're holding in their shoulders or the fact that they look away as they say it, you know, that they're going to have difficulty and you can put things in place for them. When you're dealing with people on a screen, it's um, much less human in ways. And, and there were good things about working through a pandemic, which meant that like if somebody was, you know, showing, OK, this is what we have to do for next Friday. And this is the problem that we have here. And I don't know how to fix this. Somebody would have already on a second screen gone and found a link to something that was the perfect solution to that problem. And they'd put the link in the chat and we'd all go, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. But at the same time, you would also have situations where, you know, somebody might just have joined the crew and I would take for granted that oh, I've got a term that's specific to Cartoon Saloon. That person doesn't know that term. And if we had been having a real life meeting afterwards, they just like tip me on the shoulder and kind of say, you know, what did that mean? Because I don't know what that meant. Nobody's going to unmute themselves in a, in a meeting and say, I just started last week and I don't know what that term means. And I don't know, is it an industry term? Is it something I should know? Or is this something peculiar to you or peculiar to the studio? And so there's that vulnerability that's really um, exposed in in this kind of like, um, you know, uh, virtual kind of setup that we, that we had to do for nearly two years uh, during the, the production. And so I was always trying to compensate for that. I was in a great position because I couldn't fire myself because I'm one of the heads of the company. So I could ask all the silly questions and, you know, say the things that I might know the answer to or whatever. But um, you know, in order to try and reduce the stress of just, you know, trying to have to finish a film for a deadline, do the thing that we promised to do, do it as well as we could possibly do it, but then try and be human as much as we could, because it's something all workplaces. And I think particularly animation can fall down to a lowest common kind of thing of everybody going, oh, I worked through Saturday and I worked through half a Sunday or that thing nearly killed me or something which is never healthy and never good. But if you're working in a corner of your kitchen or your bedroom and you might also have other tough stuff going on, like you can't see your parents because they might be vulnerable or they might be far away in a different country that you can't visit because you're in a pandemic. That's really, really tough. And the fact that we managed to pull through the last couple of years at all, not to mention also managed to make a piece of work through it all is something that I'm, I'm really um, in awe of the people that I got to work with because of what they what they did. How do you sort of stay sane during those tough times? Do you read? Do you watch TV? Do you just 
go outside for a walk. It was funny, a, a number of people had like, you know, pets, cats and dogs and stuff like that. And cats in particular, kind of, you know, if you're talking, <laughs> you're you're in a meeting and it's all really serious. And then a cat's butt kind of thing decides to like, you know, go right into your face or something like that when you're trying to, to work. There were those things, you know, those times, you know, my kids crawling in because using that exact moment when I'm trying to like talk to the crew to steal my phone because they know I'm not going to give out to them, you know, kind of thing while everybody's watching me on the screen. Those were, you know, very humbling <laughs> kind of moments. Yeah, I mean, I love I love sitting on the sofa and with my husband just watching stuff, falling asleep, maybe halfway through, <laughs> whatever. But, I, you know, I ju just I love stories. I love other people's stories. I love being involved in other people's creativity because that's incredibly hopeful and invigorating to see other people doing fantastic things. It takes so long to make a project and to get things off the ground. How do you stay creative? For me, it's a weird trance-like state, right? So if, you know, whether you're working with actors or I, I spend a lot of time in edit, so I bounce back and forth with our editors rather than kind of sit behind them. I would literally have an avid and would work back and forth with them uh, rather than the kind of edit suite kind of usual experience. So if I try and find, per personally, I try and find that trance-like state, no matter, no matter what it is, if it's... um uh, you know, looking at the, our, our animators, um, uh, sequences as they come in and imagining the, and, you know, sitting, I, I was trying to imagine myself, you know, sitting in the, the perfect seat with the perfect screen, with the perfect sound. That's trance-like for me. So that, that keeps me creative when I feel like I have a thread to hold on to. Like if I know what a story is, um, like the story that we're going for, holding on to that and knowing who else's hands can be on that thread and how and, that keeps me creative. But also I just, I love, I love that really good jealousy you have when somebody else does something and it's fucking wonderful. Like it's just amazing. And I, I wish I'd have done that. You know, I wish I could do that. Or I love that sense because that's, you know, that, that, um, that, you know, I just love when other people are extremely creative and I have that good jealousy, you know, that good, that good thing that made me feel like, oh, I wish I could have done that myself. It just pushes you to do more. Oh, it does. But also pushes me to want to get involved with those people as well, you know, kind of thing. And then I get that feeling like with the, with Tom and, and uh, Paul and uh, Fabian, like just like when back in the belly firm and feeling of just getting to, to make stuff that's much bigger than you. This is a theme that keeps coming up, this idea of, you know, teamwork and family and working together to create this piece of work or even just to, to commiserate with somebody that's having that same experience with you. That seems to a theme that comes up in your career a lot. It does. I mean, you can't be, you know, like the, the crews are big, right? We had 300 people working on this, you know, um, 150 of those are artists whose hands, you know, either like made the acrylic brushstrokes on the, on the backgrounds or the, you know, uh, drew the frames of the effects or the animation. I, you know, I didn't get to speak to each one of those individually. I never could. I, the most I could do is I like, come on these Friday meet, big meetings that we'd have and we'd kind of discuss stuff that we had amazing heads of departments on projects. As a director as well, I think if you're, if you're kind of like new to directing, you feel like you have to do everything yourself because you're not sure you can and therefore you need to. But really your duty as a director is to communicate to everybody else to make sure that they're able to do their jobs to the best of their ability. Your heads of departments are extremely important because, like I said, your, your tentacles can't reach everybody, but theirs can. They can reach everybody in their own team. You can never undermine those people, right? You can never go straight to an animator, for example. If an animator is having a tough time on a scene, you have to make sure that your um, supervisor is the person that you're talking to, because if you undermine them, they lose um, face and, you know, in, in front of the people that they, they, they need to be working with day to day. And you can't be there the next day again for somebody else, right? Because 
then you're not doing your job as a director properly. You're involved in a particular part of a particular, you know, um, piece of, of filmmaking. And the big picture is there, <laughs> you know, which um, you need to make sure is as good as it possibly can be so that everybody it's worth everybody's work on the project. So I'm not, you know, it's not like we're like a massive family and I know everybody's, you know, kids names or anything like that. I do what I need to do in order to make sure that everybody is empowered to the point that we can all do our best work. But like as a director, you have to have your your hand on the, uh, you know, your, your, your eye to the big picture. Otherwise, you don't deserve that animator's work, you know, um, because you haven't crafted the story as well as it should be crafted or you're not talking to the sound design people at the same time as that anim- piece of animation is being done. So, uh, you know, you have to make sure that the people, you know, hierarchy in a production is something that, you know, sometimes people are uncomfortable with, but it's impossible to make a film without, it's, you know, that sense of empowering just, you know, the people who are best qualified to, you know, be heads of their departments so that everything, you know, so that you can have as large a reach as you possibly can. I think this ties nicely with my last question, and that is, what would you say to someone that's interested in getting into the industry? What would be the one piece of advice you would give them? Gosh, I guess part of me says, like know when to say no, right? And I think this particularly goes out to women and people who may, mightn't go to, you know, be used to getting the jobs that they are associated with. So I would say know when to say no, as in like if you're doing really well in your department and you're really skilled, people are going to kind of want to keep you there because they don't have to worry about your department while you're there. But yet you need to be able to move on when the time is right for you, even though that might mean that you're suddenly insecure you're suddenly not the expert in your field. You're, you know, but it, but it means that you're stretched to where you actually want to stretch. So I would say, you know, don't be afraid of disappointing people because they'll respect you for that. No, if it's right, you know, if, if you're doing something that's going to further your career in the way that you want to further it, I would say that. But then there's also the no one to say yes, right? Because like I said, I did clean the toilets and I did do bits of, you know, compositing, even though I was not the best compositor. I'd done a lot of different disciplines in, so that I can know what the team have to go through. And I I can never, I would never take for granted somebody's job or how much work it takes, you know, because there are times as a director that you have to say, yeah, I know you spent a week animating that, but it's not working and we have to lose it and we have to ask you to do something else, you know, but I never take for granted that that's like, that's a huge part of somebody's life. And it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, massive thing that they did. So in order to be, to know what, <laughs> what it is that people have to do, if you're early enough in your career, and I don't mean like, oh, if you're in your twenties, I mean, like if you're 50 and you've decided to retrain and become a director or whatever, that you know enough about what people need to do that you can fully respect it. And that was our conversation with Nora Toomey. You can find My Father's Dragon now streaming on Netflix. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.